so happy to be here with you this evening. Um, I have given a few talks at Franciscan over the years, and mostly I parachuted in and then left. So I've actually, I'm kind of nervous to tell you the truth. I mean, my daughter said, why are you nervous? You know, that's stupid. You've given this talk so many times, and in a way that's true. But now see, tomorrow I have to face encountering you in the halls on our way to class. So I was able to get away with it before because I was just a speaker from out of town. But so hopefully it'll go okay. I'm planning on it going okay, so don't panic, but okay. Let's see. Um, yeah, some, sometimes I run into someone who says to me, oh, I heard you speak, and I immediately think, oh, gosh, I hope it was a good night. But it is a special honor for me to have been invited to speak to you this evening, right at the beginning of our year together, and the start of a semester that, for some of you, is your first initiation into college life and a gateway to your future. So I'm really grateful and touched and honored by Father Jonathan's trust in me that he would give me a shot at talking to you tonight, sort of first, you know. So I really thank you for that opportunity, Father. Um, now, one of the reasons why it's a big deal, of course, is because we're here to talk about a question that might just be the question of our era. I think we could probably make that case, right? The question of who is man and woman, both in relation to each other and in and of themselves. So the church has articulated that question in a very helpful way. She says, and she puts it in two parts, how are we to understand the creator's purpose in determining that human beings would always exist as only male or female? Do you hear that part? Always exist only as either male or female. And then secondly, what are the consequences of that decision? So as Father said, this is just the first part of a two-part series. Dr. Robert McNamara will give part two tomorrow night. My job, as I understand it, is to provide a context um, of, the, of a theory, my theory anyway, building on JP2, of course, uh, of a theory of complementarity. And, um, I want, and then I'm supposed to focus sort of on the masculine genius. There is one. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the men in the room go, really? I, and sometimes the women do too, actually, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But there definitely is one, and we should be grateful for it. Okay, so we'll come back to that. And then, as I understand it, Dr. McNamara will speak further about, more specifically, I guess, about the feminine genius. But I'm going to say a few words about it too. So, all right, so let's begin. And as we do so, let's, I want to keep something in front of us as we go along. Something that John Paul II declares about all this in his letter to women. There he states unequivocally that the complementarity that characterizes the relationship between men and women, he refers to it as a relational uniduality. Only John Paul II could put something like that and get away with it. He says that this complementarity is actually what constitutes our mission. And further, that our mission is not only to create human families, but human history itself. Okay, Human history itself. That's what we're doing here every day and what they're doing out there. 
as you can probably see, it something was not we're not doing a, too good a job of that at some point. Not you guys, present company excluded, of course. We're doing everything we should, but um, we have a lot of work to do, right? So. Therefore, we share responsibility tonight for trying to understand what that means and why he says it, okay? Okay, so we're gonna launch, but I, I wanna start not with philosophy or theology, actually not with a theoretical, but with just two examples from the realm of lived experience. We're gonna take a really, and then we'll take a really brief look at what the science actually says about this topic. What I will show you is that the theory I want to present that's derived from scripture actually corresponds in every way to what science tells us about the nature of man and woman. But also it'll give us a starting place in common experience and I, I don't want to like spoil things but I think the stories are telling and also kind of funny. So I like to start with them. So here's the first one. Uh, for many years, my husband and I had a meeting in uh, an old church in downtown St. Paul. We would, it was a faith meeting, relay missionaries of charity. So we would go and we would have a happy hour and, uh, no, a holy hour. <laughs> <laughs> rewind that tape. Can you rewind that tape? So a holy hour. And then we would go downstairs into the basement. That was a mistake, but I'm glad it got a laugh. Anyway. I, and we would go down into the basement, and it was a room about twice the size of this, and quite often with one table, a six-foot table, like they have in parish basements, right, in the middle of the room. And one fall, uh, Maddie was with us, too. She was about eight, no, I think maybe eight or ten at the time. Anyway, we walked into the hall, and saints preserve us. There was a bat flying around the room, I mean, scared to death, looking for a way out. In a nanosecond, all the women in the room were underneath the table with their hands over their heads, protecting their hair, including me. I mean, I was, I was right there with them. And so was Maddie. We knew exactly where to go. There was no hesitation, no discussion, nothing. What do you think the men were doing? The men, in the same amount of time, immediately found brooms, dust mops, garbage cans, garbage bags, dust, dust pans, whatever they could find in order to be able to capture the bat. And of course they captured the bat, working together they captured the bat. And um, the women were relieved, but of course we all said, oh please don't kill the poor thing. <laughs> so what does that tell us, do you think, about man and woman, man in particular? The men didn't hesitate. There was no discussion, no sitting around with flip charts and defining a strategy or anything like that. It was immediate. The women knew where they were supposed to go and the men knew what they were supposed to do. That's an example of the masculine genius. If it weren't for men, I want you guys to hear this, we would still be living in caves, afraid to come out. Now, I don't want to say that the women in the room couldn't have captured the bat, but we could have, I suppose, if we really wanted to. But the truth is we didn't. And I can say for sure that that group of women would have retreated to the nearest coffee shop, called up the maintenance man, and said, by the way, you have a bat in your basement. Please get rid of it. Okay. So um, 
I, I wanted to give you an example of a woman, and I'll make it really quick. Um, because I'm not really supposed to talk about her. I'm supposed to talk about men. But um, a few years ago, or actually quite a few years ago now, Maddie was about eight at the time, I was at the park with her. And uh, she was climbing on the equipment and so on. And so, and so I was just sitting there watching her and making sure everything was going okay. But I noticed that right in front of me, there were a couple dads who were sitting there talking to each other very intently about something. And this little maybe four-year-old boy at the oldest climbed up to the top of the jungle gym. Okay. And I knew that that little boy belonged to one of those dads. But the dad didn't notice it. And as I'm watching that little boy, I know, you know what, he's going to fall. I can see he's like hanging by one hand. He's looking down at the sand. And the dad's... So I'm thinking to myself, he's going to fall. Should I get up and catch him? Oh, my gosh. And I'm getting, starting to go. When from out, from across the field, in another part of the park, a mom comes running across at a diagonal. Somehow, she was in the other part of the park, see, what, playing soccer with her daughter. And she knew from, I don't know how far away, way, way far away, that her son was about ready to fall off the jungle gym. She raced over and she got there just a second too late. The little boy landed in the sand and I, don't, I can't repeat to this audience what she said to her husband. I felt really sorry for him. <laughs> I actually had a friend though whose wife divorced him because she felt he didn't pay attention to the safety of the children. If I'd only known then what I know now, I could have prevented it, I think. Because the truth is, women have better peripheral vision. Yeah, we can see out of the sides of our eyes better than men can. Men, are, men have target vision, and they need that, right? They can take the hill like nobody's business. They've got the bat. But that woman knew that, whoops. Uh, she, where she was needed from way over there. So that's an example, really, of the feminine genius, as you'll see. Okay, all right. So I did that. Okay. So these are examples that may seem familiar. The feminists and many of the scientists in our culture will tell you that it's all a matter of conditioning and anything inherent, anything, not anything inherent in who we are as embodied pictures, uh, persons, <laughs> I better put glasses on. But here's an example from A World Away, and certainly not funny. Did you know that when the aid workers in famine-stricken areas of Africa deliver food or supplies, they'll only give them to the women because the men take them and sell them on the black market? And that is definitely not the result of Western or patriarchal conditioning. Okay, so they take them back. The women take them back to the villages, their villages to feed the, the elderly and their children. So it can't be explained away by social conditioning. And here are some other examples, some facts that I'll share with you that demonstrate it even further. Science. Researchers have found that boys and girls exhibit male and female personality traits from the day they are born. 
It is on the record that there are scientists of both sexes who began their research secure in the conviction that they would demonstrate that these traits are the result of socialization. They had to change their tune when the data revealed it to be otherwise. There were scientists who became parents who began to raise their children and determined to avoid any hint of the dreaded stereotyping, set it up completely differently somehow. I guess no pink blankets, no blue blankets. I'm not really sure how they went about that. Trucks for the girls, maybe dollies for the boys, I don't know. But we're in the end forced to admit that male newborns behave like boys and female newborns behave like girls right from the start. Female babies are judged to be more sensitive, the males to be stronger. And here's just a few examples of what has been scientifically demonstrated. Baby girls look at faces. Baby boys look at objects. So the baby boy will look at the mobile above his head rather than at your face. And if you talk to baby girls, they'll look at your face even longer. For boys, it doesn't seem to matter. You laugh, but you just wait. In contrast to one-day-old male babies, one-day-old baby girls respond to the sound of human distress. They can already distinguish between the sound of a fork falling on the floor and that of a child crying. Yeah. When new toys are introduced in a nursery school, the boys drop what they are doing and go see. The girls remain in their little circle whispering to each other, I guess. But when, when uh, new children arrive, the girls go and greet them. The boys are like, oh, there's some new kids, no big deal. Come and see us if you want, right? No matter what you give a boy to play with, he will make a truck or a sword out of it. <laughs> little girls will wrap almost anything in a blanket and carry it around like a baby. There was an experiment done by a toy company. They wanted to figure out some kind of dollhouse that would appeal to both boys and girls. I don't, yeah, who knows why? I mean, it's got to do with what's happening in our culture. So, okay, so they had both boys and girls playing with this dollhouse. And the boys made a catapult out of the baby bassinet or something. And, and they, they actually had a contest about who could make it go further, right? So they kept repeating the experiment with, I don't know exactly what, maybe a big rubber band or so, I don't know, was it, or some kind of thing that would throw it like that. And the researchers freaked out. They said, see, this is evidence of uh, male violence or some nonsense like that, right? It was ridiculous. So every, everybody knows that that's what little boys do. I had brothers, and they killed all my Barbies all the time. <laughs> Yeah, they, they would line them up, and they'd have them play army, and they'd take off their heads, and it was always a source of stress for us in the, in the house. So the same evidence shows up across cultures. Girls show more interest in babies. Boys are more interested in things. One wonders how much money they spent discovering what everyone else has known all along. I told my mom about this research, and she said, well, why didn't they just call me? <laughs> So when we find ourselves in a situation where people feel threatened by the suggestion that men and women are different, we can be confident that the church's teaching on complementarity is not some plot hatched by the patriarchy 
only intended to subvert women or return them to slavery or something. In what follows, we will see that scripture reveals what science is only just discovering, that man and woman are fundamentally equal in the sense they are equally human, but constitute different and complementary ways of being in the world. I think what I say next will make clear how closely aligned these two accounts from separate disciplines, science and theology, seem to be. We are on the right track. For without question, of course, it shouldn't surprise us, God is the author of all truth. Um, so I'll try to bring out in, in some additional examples as we go along, but I can't really guarantee it because I know I'll get the hook at a certain point. But so, anyway, so we'll turn our attention now to Genesis 1 and 2 and the meaning to be derived from those passages concerning the nature of woman in relation to man. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, my own theory takes its starting place from John Paul's account. I have gone a bit further. I like to think of it as sort of a creative co completion of his project, maybe an extension. But I want you to know I've been praying to him since he died in 2005. I, I didn't wait till he got canonized. I hope no one will hold that against me. Um, and I'm quite sure I heard him say, you go, girl. Okay, so I have his permission. The theory has a number of moving parts. I won't be able to take you through all of them, but I will do my best to demonstrate what I have concluded these passages are telling us. Okay. So our starting place is the claim that St. John Paul II makes in the opening pages of the Theology of the Body. In the second and third audiences, the late Holy Father argues that we can derive the meaning of man from the two distinct creation accounts found in Genesis 1 and 2. First, as an objective reality created in the image of God, and secondly, in the aspect of his subjectivity. So the first account talks about man per se, if you know these terms, man as man, man in the abstract. The second account is about man and his subjectivity in the psychological sense, he says. Okay. So I found this to be a very interesting claim, but it is one that John Paul II decides not to exploit. In the seventh audience, he states that his intent is not to pursue this more metaphysical account of the soul in union with the body, but to focus instead on the meaning of one's own body. So when I read that, I said, that's okay with me. I'll do it. I'll look into it for you. And so there's the completion of his project part. No one scholar can do everything, you know, so it's all right. Anyway, I thought it was a little bit of hubris, I realize, but you'll see. I think I've done him proud, I don't, or something, I don't know. I'll find out later, <laughs> I hope. All right, so the truth is I've been pondering these two creation accounts for really over 10 years looking into the meaning in the, their meaning in the original language, considering other interpretations, in particular Hebraic anthropology, praying about them, thinking about them sort of incessantly. And in the end, I can say that he is right. If we look at the text through the lens of the Thomas, of Thomas's Aquinas's metaphysical anthropology, refracted through Hebraic anthropology, we really can say that the first account establishes that both man and woman simply must be understood to be absolutely equal 
In this sense, they're equally human. They are both in what the philosophers would say instantiations of the same substantial form. There's no male or female soul. There's only a human soul. And uh, the man and woman are both instantiations of that same substantial form. That's what they call it. And we equally possess, therefore, of intellect, will, and freedom. You can derive that from the first account. I don't have time to prove it to you right now. So you'll just have to take my word for it. But I'd be happy to sort that out with you if you want. Okay, but in Genesis 2, we find an account of what distinguishes us. The principle of dis differentiation is found or originates in the matter of which we're made, but the differences cannot be reduced to a material cause. For though matter is one of the things that differentiates me from man, since I am composed of both body and soul, and since my, both my body and my soul are meant for me, Aquinas works that out in the Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 2, Question 83. In case anybody's wondering, did you want me to repeat that so you could write it down? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, okay, I, the point is, I am a, in some essential way a woman. To, gender is not the same kind of accident, philosophical accident, as the color of my hair, okay, which is also an accident. <laughs> of a certain kind. But anyway, so my womanness does not reside in me merely in the matter of which I am made. It is who I am, as, as JP2 states, both physically and ontologically. When I go to heaven, I don't go to, or wait, let me back up. When I go to the pearly gates, when I try to get into heaven, I don't go as some androgynous blob, right? I go as me. So I'm responsible having become the woman I'm meant to be. Not just the human being I'm meant to be, but the woman I'm, I'm meant to be, yeah. And the men here are responsible for coming, becoming the man that God meant for them to be, yeah. So men and women are equal composite creatures differentiated by the matter of which they are made, and this is true of both of them. Now this is enormously important, and I only have time to assert what it reveals, and here it is. Neither the male nor the female can be considered normative for the species. Do you know what I mean by that? The male of the species is not normative. In our culture, the feminists are all trying to become men because they think that's how you get ahead. Zzz, get the hook for that. No. Women have to come into their own to be who they are. Not the, the way to freedom is not to imitate men. You follow me? So, so okay, that's what it would mean for, uh, to say that they're not, nor, neither are normative for this species. Okay, so that's the necessary backstory. So we're ready to look at what we can discover by considering the two accounts together and a bit more broadly. And the first point of interest begins in Genesis 1, where the sacred author seems to lay out a particular hierarchical order in which we see God clearly creates. God begins, remember, with the heaven and the earth, then light, then divides the waters and creates dry land, etc. There are sea monsters in there somewhere. He creates swarms of living creatures and things that creep. This all culminates in the creation of Adam, male and female, 
who are both tasked with subduing the earth and filling it. But the point is, this is clearly a hierarchy that is on its way up from lower life forms to higher. Can you see that? Okay. Now, the second account also indicates a sort of hierarchy. For there we read at 2.7 that the man, in Hebrew it's ha-adam, is fashioned from the dust of the earth. When at Genesis 2.18 God sees that man is alone, God forms every creature and brings them to man to be named. Then God, realizing that none of the creatures correspond to man's own being and that it is not good for him to be alone, decides it's necessary to make a fitting helper. The words are azer kenegdo for him. So he puts him in a deep sleep, forms the woman from the man's rib, etc. And Adam says, man says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And as John Paul says, in Eve, Adam, man, recognizes another person, a being equal to himself, a someone, not just a something, a someone who he can love and to whom he can make of himself a gift. This seems pretty straightforward. But there are several additional and important points to glean from considering these two chapters together. First of all, it is not until the moment of woman's creation at Genesis 2.22 that the sacred author refers to man and woman for the first time as concrete subjects of existence, as real existing persons. Only now are they ish and isha. The sacred author makes crystal clear by using those terms that there is no concretely existing man without a concretely existing woman. The language has changed, and you have, to, you have to follow that. Ish and Isha refers to existing man, existing woman, and there's no Ish until Isha comes along. Secondly, it is only when we come to the making of woman that we see the final significance of the order introduced in the first account and brought to completion in the second. Man is made from earth, Adama, but woman is made from man. And though it has troubled feminists forever and is arguably at the beginning point of the historical misinterpretation of this passage, the fact that woman is created is not to make her subservient. Woman is not created second. She is created last and on the way up. Can we let that sink in? Can I get an amen? Well, maybe not. You're not quite ready for that. And the men, they're, they're not too sure yet, so hold on. <laughs> Woman is not created second. She's created last. She is, in fact, made on the way up. The last creature to appear. There's a hierarchy, and she's the last one, and it's going up, man, I'm telling you. Back to God, okay? So, uh, okay, uh, a creature made not from earth, but from something that arguably already contains a greater actualization than dust or clay. She's made of finer stuff. But anyway, we can at least say that because of the order suggested by reading the accounts together, a woman can be seen as the pinnacle of creation, not as a creature whose place in that order is subservient or somehow less in stature than that of man. Indeed, and here's the, here's the real point, 
It'll make the men feel better. With the creation, because I'm going to make some adjustments here in a second, so don't, don't worry. But with the creation of woman, human community appears for the first time. She reveals to man who he is. That's our task, girl, ladies. We reveal to the man who he is. We see the potential in him. We invite him to fulfill it. We seek not to destroy, but to invite, to embrace. That's woman's gift. They see the potential in people. Men do too, so don't get me wrong. All these things can be said about both men and women in a way that I'm going to say. But it's, this is women's default position, <laughs> right? It's your first reach. So that with the creation of woman, human community appears for the first time and enters into human history. It, it's true, this is true from Hebraic anthropology, which I don't have time to really tell you much about. Without man, he really is the first creature, but without man, woman has no place. But without woman, man has no future. Got it? Yeah. This proposition is reinforced when we consider that the Hebrew word usually translated as helper is actually azer and actually does not mean servant or slave. When this word is used elsewhere in scripture, it has the connotation of divine aid. In the Psalms, it means help sent by God. So used here to express helper or partner, it's a word that indicates someone who is most definitely not subservient. There is the sense of an equal, a partner, help sent by God. Thus, woman is not built to be his servant, except in the Christian sense, of course, but someone who can help him to live. However, and here's the correction, it's immediately essential to note the full text. There's no mistakes in scripture. It's azer konegdo. She's azer konegdo. Konegdo is a preposition that means in front of, in the sight of, before, in the spatial sense. And so we recognize that while woman is not below man in the order of creation, neither is she above him. She stands in front of him, before him, meeting his gaze, as it were, sharing in the responsibility for the preservation of all that precedes them. Okay, so if you have questions, write them down and we can talk about it later. Hopefully I won't use all my time up. <laughs> okay, so now we'll talk specifically about the genius of man and woman. And I'm going to start with men, mostly because that's what I promised, but also because he's first in the order of creation. So it's notable that man is apparently in the garden alone with God for some period before the appearance of woman, something that has important implications for the place he occupies in the created order and the traditional understanding of man as the head of the household, by the way. I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but we could. But aside from this special relationship with the creator, it can be said that man's first contact with reality is of a horizon that otherwise contains only lower creatures, what we might call things. In Latin, it's the res, and it has a real weight. It's not just things like your iPhone. It's things, things with whatness. 
This is what leads God to conclude that the man is incomplete and alone and ultimately leads to the building of woman. But man's orientation toward things is clearly a part of God's design. In fact, it may provide a point of departure in Scripture for the well-documented evidence, some of which I shared with you, that men seem more naturally oriented toward things than toward persons. Man is tasked with naming all the things God brings him, including woman. It is in naming them that he takes dominion over them. But think what kind of knowledge, what kind of capacity man would have had to have had to see into the nature of things. The beginning of wisdom is to call things by their right names. Yes. And men have this astonishing uh, ability to declare what something is, what can be predicated of it, what it is not, what need not be predicated of it, and to develop systems like theology and philosophy and legal, legal systems, those baseball cards when you go to the ba baseball game, those people are filling out those statistics about something or other, definitely a guy thing. Yeah, yeah. Tools, don't touch my husband's tools. If you do, you better put the screwdriver back in the right place, that sort of thing. It doesn't mean we can't do things, women can't do those things, but this is men's default gift. They know what the goods of creation are and what they're for, and their task is to bring those to life, to make those things, to leverage those things for the good of their families, for the good of their communities. So it can, it can thus be said that man knows things in ways that woman simply does not. And this is where uh, the core of what I propose is man's genius. I kind of said it. He learns that he excels at discovering what things are, how they are to be distinguished from one another, and what they are for. This is his gift. I would argue that it is man's capacity to name things, to determine what can be predicated of something and what cannot, and an ability to arrive at a systematic way of judging the matter that constitutes the gift that men bring to the tasks of human living. It is man who at Genesis 2.15, and well before the fall puts him at odds with creation, is put in the garden to till it and to keep it. Man is actually the only one who gets a specific job. This is his work. We don't know what woman is doing, actually. She's singing somewhere or something. But this is his work. The genius of man is found in his capacity to know and to use the goods of the earth in the service of authentic human flourishing. Now, I hasten to add that this orientation toward things does not mean that man is somehow disordered. Man's first contact with reality includes the Lord God. He is in the first instance aware of his dependence upon his creator, and he is truly marked by that relationship forever after. It is within this context that he encounters the woman. Until the woman is brought to him, both to name and to love as he can love no other, he has no other like himself. Though this will change after the fall, he knows immediately that the woman is not a thing, not an object. She is a person. And without hesitation, he declares that she is flesh of his flesh. And while he can and does name her, 
He cannot have dominion over her in the same way he has over everything else. She represents for him his highest good, the greatest gift God has given him. And as a consequence, the value of all the rest of creation is abrogated. From and through his encounter with the woman, the Lord God reveals to him the nature of the reciprocal relationship of the gift of self. And he must realize as well that his own gift, that of caring for her, caring for and using the goods of creation, is a gift to be exercised in service to her authentic good and in the service of their mission to have dominion over all the earth. The contemporary dissatisfaction with the tendency of man to attend to things more than to people completely overlooks the fact that the things of creation also have ontological status. They may be lower creatures, but they are creatures, and as such are held in existence by God in much the same way that human persons are. The masculine inclination toward things and their uses is an aspect of the charism of men, and in many ways it accounts for the building up of human civilization, has led throughout history to human flourishing, and has made and still makes possible the preservation of families and of culture. As I said, the truth is that if it weren't for men, we would still be living in caves. The proper response to the manifestation of the genius of men is not ridicule or resentment, but gratitude. So a brief comment about the genius of woman. In contrast to man, and of special significance is the quite legitimate claim that since woman comes into existence after man, her first contact with reality is of a horizon that from the beginning includes man. That is, it includes persons. One can imagine Eve, a person also endowed with reason and free will, who upon seeing Adam would recognize another like her, an equal, while the other creatures and things around her appear only on the periphery of her gaze. This exegetical insight seems to provide a starting place in scripture for the equally well-documented phenomenon that women seem more naturally oriented toward persons. In Mulier's Dignitatum, John Paul argues that the feminine genius is grounded in the fact that all women have the capacity to be mothers and that this capacity, whether fulfilled in a physical or spiritual sense, orients her toward the other, toward persons. There's plenty of evidence of that. I don't dispute it at all. Um, Eve is certainly the mother of all humankind. But the point is that in addition to her capacity to conceive and nurture human life, indeed prior to it, woman's place in the order of creation reveals that from the beginning, the horizon of all womankind includes persons, includes the other. Woman has never lived in a, in a world not already inhabited by persons. Cannot be said for man. This may explain why girls and women seem to know from the beginning that they are meant for relationship, while it takes men a bit longer to look up and realize they are lonely for something they only realized was missing and to look for the one who can complete them and to finally pick up the phone and give you a call. Yeah. 
Anyway, the genius of woman is found here. While man's first experience of his own existence is of loneliness, woman's horizon is different right from the start. From the first moment of her own reality, woman sees herself in relation to the other. The fall will result in a disorder in this inclination. Woman's desire will now be for relationship with man, even when she knows he is using her as an object. John Paul says that women use men too because we want to give ourselves to somebody and we're looking around for somebody to do that with. Big mistake. Because remember, your job is to see the potential in the man and to allow him, invite him to become who he's meant to be and vice versa for that matter. Okay. The, but the preceding anal analysis has shown that this capacity to include the other is not a lesser quality. It is not uh, something that only unnecessarily complicates things, diverting us from an otherwise clear line of sight to achieving results. Nor does it compromise woman's fundamental intelligence, uh, her competence, her ability to get things done. Woman's genius is to keep constantly before us the fact that the existing existence of living persons, whether in the womb or walking around outside of it, cannot be forgotten while we frantically engage in the tasks of human living. Woman is responsible for reminding us all that all human activity is to be ordered toward authentic human flourishing. So I have developed a more thorough analysis of the fall in light of this account of woman and man, but can only point to a few things here as we draw, I draw my remarks to a close. First, the story of the fall at Genesis 3 makes manifestly clear that they will suffer differently as a result of their sin, and the nature of the consequences they each face seems to reflect a distortion of the unique gifts given to each of them. We are all familiar with the narrative. Woman will now be dominated by the man. She will endure greater pain in childbirth. Nonetheless, her yearning will be for her husband, who will, in spite of her desire, lord it over her. As for man, instead of occupying the place of secure and confident steward of God's creation, he will now struggle with creation. Those things he named as his own in Genesis 2 will now only yield their fruits with suffering and toil. The consequences of the fall are very real for women, and I would love to expand on those. One example I already gave you, she'll find herself tempted to give herself to a man even though she knows he's using her. But in the interest of time, and again because I promised, let's zero in on its effects on man, and then we will conclude. Original sin can be said to affect man in particular in his tendency to forget that all is gift that his first obligation is toward his creator. Indeed, it is so very interesting. If I asked you to tell me what's the first thing God says to, to man, to Adam, after the fall, what does he say when he comes upon him besides, where are you? What's the first thing he says? You won't, you won't remember. Here's what it is. Because you listened to your wife. Okay, so I first read that, I thought, oh, that's kind of complicating. What am I complicating my theory? Does this mean men are not supposed to listen to their wives? Which men seem to think is true. <laughs> no. The subtext is, because you listen to your wife and not to me. 
The minute a man forgets that he's to listen to his creator, first he loses his place in, this, in that order. Yep. So, most devastating for human relationships, he forgets what he knew in the first instance of his encounter with the woman, that she is not an object. This forgetfulness leads to a disordered relationship to things, for now everything and everyone is an object, something to be dominated and used as he see fits. This manifests for some men in a quest for power over people and nations and their possessions, frequently leading to actual war, which are, by the way, almost exclusively starting, started by men, I'm, I'm just saying, you know. Um, or to hostile corporate takeovers or to plain everyday Machiavellian manipulation in the workplace. It has led men in particular to forget that the created order is itself a gift given to him to till and to keep. Instead, they seek to exploit it, and the result has been environmental degradation. It leads to a compulsion for work and acquisition that then leads them to forget themselves and the real purpose of human existence. So, uh, gosh, I, I would like to talk for another few hours about all of this. But in these brief sketches, we can grasp the significance of this account for our understanding of man and woman in the path ahead for, bo for both. The very gifts we are given are sort of turned upside down by the fall. So they're gifts that are at one and the same time, both our greatest weaknesses and our path to redemption. So if I have one or two minutes, I just have a concluding paragraph or so. Okay. So this does bring me to a conclusion. There's one more essential point that must be made if we are to illuminate the way forward. For while the masculine and feminine genius can be spoken of on the level of nature, they are, in fact, both supernatural realities whose full expression cannot be realized without the action of grace. Both a feminine and masculine genius, if we can call it that, begins as a potency in nature, one that certainly can be actuated, observed, and spoken about on that level. Anyone with a mom knows that there, there's such a thing as a feminine genius, right? And I would add that anyone with a dad who goes to work every day, I'm sure moms do too, but you know what I mean, every single day, He's the, he's the person that gets up when, or answers the door at 11 o'clock at night, things like that. Um, Maddie's been here without her dad for a few weeks because he's got stuff to do in St. Paul and can't quite make it down yet. And boy, does she need him to affirm her. The literature says that the single most important person in a little girl's life is her dad. Yeah. Okay. In truth, if woman and man are to manifest this genius in its fullness, it will require them to enter into the life of grace and be sustained by it if they are to arrive at the level that represents a more perfected state. So in closing, if it is true that this complementarity is what gives us our actual mission, then we must face our very real challenges with full and explicit awareness of our status as partners, not adversaries. The difficulty is that the effects of original sin are not left at the door. They accompany us wherever we go. We always forget about original sin. 
Only a self-conscious awareness of this reality will ensure that the necessary partnership is forged. Both men and women will need to acknowledge their own blind spots and work together to arrive at a comprehensive vision of what constitutes the authentic progress of the community and of humankind. It is, after all, the sacred task of the laity to transform the temporal order. Only men and women working side by side in the fullness of truth will be able to bring that about. Thank you for your kind attention. Mm -hmm.